Will you get me for one more week? And then I will be out of town, and then I'll be back, and I'll do whatever they tell me to do. So uh, we'll just we'll just enjoy the ride together. Um, <clears throat> so don't go to Acts 2.42, which is where we've been for the last four weeks, because we finished that one. I can't say we exhausted it, but we covered it as much as we need to right now. Um, and what we were thinking about, the reason... I'm just trying to give you the logic here, that, or at least the attempt at logic I had. The reason I wanted to look at that verse, especially, and those items in that verse, was because it has to do with body life, what the church devotes itself to, because in our lesson, we're talking about discipleship, or in our lesson, our booklet, in our local studies. Um, and discipleship... It's my conviction that discipleship is is more than just one-on-one of a more mature believer to a less mature believer. Um, it's what the entire church is engaged in whenever um, any of its people are together. So there's there's like an intentional, structured kind of discipleship which comes to our minds that... Uh, you can go to like christianbook.com and look up resources on discipleship and it's going to give you a book and a workbook and that kind of thing. And it's meant to be done with another believer. But I think discipleship, if discipleship is what's included in the Great Commission, go therefore unto all nations and make disciples. Right? What is that? Well, that's teaching believers. Well, it's evangelizing to get people um, saved. And then when, when the Lord does save people, then you tr- teach them to be like Christ. And that, that's a whole church effort. So what I want to do today, it's, this might seem a little out of the blue, but what I want to do today is look at 1 Corinthians, and I'm actually going to try to survey the entire book. Say, so how are we going to do that in 40 minutes? Um, the best we can. And uh, it's a pretty clear structure. But the reason this stood out to me was because 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth, it was a church that was fraught with problems, but it, it was a church that the Apostle Paul kept just correcting their thinking to say, think about how you're supposed to operate as a person who is holy, as a church that is holy, as a person that practices love, and as a church that is loving. And all throughout the book, it seems that each correction is kind of bringing the people back to one or the, of those two things, or perhaps even both at the same time. And uh, it's it's concerned with body life. It's concerned with church life. <clears throat> it's not primarily focused on, <clears throat> excuse me, our individual lives away from the gathering of the church. It's primarily concerned with our lives connected to the corporate church. So I think this connects really well, and we're just going to try to blast through it really fast. It's 16 chapters, um, but it has a very clear structure. So uh, with that introduction to try to give you kind of the global perspective of why I'm trying to do this, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will see how this breaks down. Heavenly Father, we ask for your special blessing upon us as we would look at your word. You are holy God. You are 
a saving God, a merciful God who has saved us and united us together in this body, that you've brought us into union with your son, the Lord Jesus, and that we here now as part of Trinity Bible Church have the privilege of worshiping you together. I pray that as we would look at this book and just see the the breakdown, we would have an appreciation for it, but also an appreciation for uh, what we do as a church when we get together. Uh, so I ask that you would bless us and um, bring about your good purposes. Praise in your name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians. This breaks down into three main sections. It's always, there's always three points in this sermon, but we're going to have more than that. But there's always three points. Um, <clears throat> if, you'd, if I was taught every, every sermon needs to be a one-point sermon supported by three points. Um, so the first section, which is just really small, is chapters 1, 1 to 9. And that's just the introduction. And um, in there he's addressing this church. He calls them saints. Their church fraught with tons of problems, and yet he calls them saints. That's instructive for us. The next section is verse, is chapter 1, verse 10, um, all the way to chapter 16, verse 4. And <clears throat> that is what I would just call problems in the church. Because over and over again, he sees problem, and then he makes a correction, then he addresses another problem, makes a correction, addresses another problem, makes a correction. And then the rest of chapter 16 is his conclusion, which includes final greetings, Closing thoughts, uh, final exhortations that he wants to pack in before he closes the letter. In that middle section, which is the bulk of the book, Problems in the Church, there's two sections in that. So if you need to kind of draw a couple arrows off that in your notes. Um, the first one is the report from Chloe's people, and that's chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 6, verse 20. And that's where uh, people came to Paul, probably bringing a letter to him from the church and they reported by word of mouth how the church was doing, what the church was dealing with. And there's three problems that he addresses in the letter and a response to what he heard from Chloe's people. And that's quarrels, immorality, and the abuse of the body. The next subsection of problems in the church is where he's actually responding to a letter from the Corinthians. And that is starting in chapter 7 through 16, verse 4. And you'll notice, if you just were to flip over to chapter 7 real quick, you'll see that in verse 1 it says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. And over and over again in the book, that formula pops up where he says, Now concerning. Now concerning, now concerning. So that was uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Then chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning virgins. I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. Then chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Then chapter 11, verse 2. He says, now, and then he doesn't say now concerning, but now I praise you because you remember me in everything. So there's some, most likely that's modified. There's an indication there of uh, where he's heard, or in their letter, he's heard about how they're practicing something in the church, so he's still responding to something from the letter, and that's that's the famous uh, section on head coverings, which no one knows what to do with. And then um, uh, verse uh, chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. And 
chapter 15, verse 1, he addresses the, the resurrection again. Now I make known to you. And in a chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. So you see that formula pops up um, over and over again. Um, so that would be from chapter 7 through through chapter 16, verse 4. You see a response to a letter from the Corinthians. And what you've probably already seen in just how we just looked at chapter 7 there, just really briefly touched on all those, is that he's constantly looking at a problem that's that's come to his attention and then giving a doctrinal correction. And he has to correct the way they're thinking about the problem before he corrects how they ought to actually practice the thing that we're talking about. So he doesn't just change behavior, but he's interested in helping them think properly about where they're misbehaving. Um, so let's just look at that. If we look at um, the first one is quarrels in chapter 1, verse 10, and the report from Chloe's people. He's, notice what he says. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. What is he? He wants them to not be divided. Why? Because in verse 11, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Etc., etc. The issue is disunity. The issue is factions. And the issue is, you know, pick your favorite YouTube pastor. I mean, really, if you want to put it in, in, in how we would face this today. You know, I listen to John MacArthur. I listen to R.C. Sproul. You know, um, and they were using this as a reason to be divided and hostile to one another. But Paul's correction is to say, verse 13, has Christ been divided? So what's the doctrinal point he's making? That there's no division in Christ. You might have like practical divisions in that you have, you know, you have men and women in the church, you have elders and deacons, you have evangelists. At this time, you have prophets. Um, so there's, you get, there's a sense in which you could say, well, I could break down the church into different groups. But he's saying there's no divisions, there's no hostile, hostile divisions, opposing factions that are grouping under um, a ringleader or, or, um, a common kind of teacher that they love. And so his correction is to say Christ isn't divided and then to give a reminder about the gospel in chapters one and two. But when you get to chapter three to say the church is God's temple and each of these men are just servants. They're not, they're nothing special. Um, that it is so common, you know, to say, to, not to say, but to, to think of the church you go to as characterized by the man in the pulpit. And because I have this teacher in the pulpit, um, I clearly am part of a better group than that church over there, which has that man in the pulpit, who's obviously a much less capable teacher than mine. I mean, it's, we just, we do this all the time. Um, it's, I mean, it starts when you're a kid 
and you're um, bickering about uh, issues in class or something, um, and just you got groups inside the class that are divvying up, and it just we just do it in a more sophisticated way as adults, and we bring it into the church. The man is just a servant, and in chapter three, verse nine. We are God's fellow workers. He's including himself as a member of these servants that are being the factions we're developing around. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, this is chapter 3, verse 10. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's not talking about... Um, primarily, he's not talking about each individual Christian's efforts. He's talking about the servants. He's talking about the teachers, the men that they were um, building a faction around. And he says, each man's work will become evident for the day. And if you see the day in the New Testament, most likely that's referring to the day of the Lord. So that's future judgment. We'll show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And so... What does he say in verse 16? He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Each of those yous is plural. In Greek, you can differentiate between you as an individual and you as a group of people. Uh, In the UP, the Upper Peninsula, they also had a differentiation. It was you and yous. Um, So... And then sometimes it was uses. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, here, this, these are plural. So we read this. Do, do, not, do you not know that yous are a temple of God? You all are a, te- are a temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you all. So if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. It's a warning to those who are being factious. It's a warning to uh, those who are ringleaders and saying we need to follow Apollos or Paul or Peter against the others as if their um, style could be opposed to one another. Each of them taught the same gospel. And he's giving a warning here that the church belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. So none of us have a right to start to split and break up and cause division in the church because it's not our church. It's the Lord's church. That's the point he's trying to drive home. And I think that's why he even starts in chapter 1, verse 18, talking about the gospel and the word of the cross being foolishness and all this, is because he's he's got to like bring them back to realize the gospel is not about the man. You didn't have intellectual sophistication to get into the gospel, to to believe it and understand it and comprehend it and and accept it. It's foolishness to you. It's foolishness when you're in your sin. It's the wise in the world, the sophisticated, the the philosophers would look at the gospel and say, that is dumb. That you actually believe that. There's nothing, there's nothing believable about that. And Paul has to take them back to say, this is, the whole thing is about God, the power of God, the working of God, the calling of God, God choosing, God working, God planning, God saving, God accomplishing. You are just members in the temple of God, in the church of God, and you've all been given different tasks inside that church, all for God's glory. 
And so when this is why when I was kind of introducing this, I said it seems like the two main issues that he keeps circling, not explicitly, but they're they're in there. They seem to be kind of motivating his corrections. Is we belong to God, so we're to be holy and we're to love. And those those two seem to be the um, prevalent throughout chapter 13. That's really obvious for love, right? I'll show you a more excellent way. In chapter five, it's really obvious for holiness because. He's saying there's immorality among you and it's egregious. Even the Gentiles wouldn't do such a thing. Remove it. Re- like remove the man from your midst. And he even quotes the Old Testament to purge the, the evil from among you. Um, so there's parts that are really explicit. Holiness and love. But that's even the idea that seems to be at least implicit kind of between the lines. Um, in this first section about quarrels, there's to to be to love the Lord properly, to be holy, to be obedient to the Lord, is part of that is to not cause division. Part of that is to um, watch your conduct and remember that you're just a fool who accepted a foolish gospel, just like your brother and sister next to you, because it's all of the Lord. It's all the Lord's saving, um, saving work. The next section under the report from Chloe's people, we had quarrels. That was through chapter 4, verse 21, is um, immorality. And that's chapter 5, verse 6, 11. And here it's holiness is really clear, as I just said, and we'll just see that. He deals with egregious sexual sin first. Um, and the principle here is that the church is to be a holy people who are totally dedicated to the Lord. Holy, the idea of holy, it means separate. Um, if you see sanctified or saint, all of those are connected to the same word for, for holy, hagias. Um, and so the idea is being set apart for sacred use, set apart for, for service to God. So if you have, then, um, rank sin existing in the body, you ha- what do you have? But you have um, people who are living for their sinful passions and not being set apart for the service, for service to God. Um, and they thought that this was just fine. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported, and so that report would be from Chloe's people, that there is immorality among you. Immorality of such a kind as do not, does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife and be his stepmother. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. You have become arrogant. You've become prideful. You've become conceited, puffed up. I'm just using English synonyms here. Um, it In the American church, that's, again, that's just what I know, so I'm just pointing out problems that I've seen. Um, <clears throat> you, you could almost say the American church is too forgiving. And maybe that's a little jarring. Um, but uh, when I was taking uh, counseling 
uh, classes at seminary uh, from Dr. John Street, he said he said that the church can be too forgiving because it can be so he's kind of doing that tongue in cheek so forgiving that it's actually looking over sin, in which case you'd say, well, technically it's not forgiving because you can only forgive if there's been repentance and there's a transaction that takes place. Um, but um, the church the church can be too eager to not be confrontational and leave each other's sanctification up to the Lord that we which is which you should do that we kind of overcorrect onto that side and not actually address sin that's in the body. Um, <clears throat> the the marks of a healthy church includes church discipline. If a church is not practicing church discipline, then it doesn't care about holiness. It's just that simple. And <clears throat> the Lord calls us to be holy. And, and um, I'll just read this here. In First uh, Peter chapter 1, he, he leaves no room to budge here, where he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's quoting Leviticus. Um, and if there's any book which you would read and say, does this apply to the church? Except for chapter 16 um, about the Day of Atonement. You'd say, you'd, you'd wonder if Leviticus applied to the church. And yet Peter appeals to that for this ethical imperative. Be holy, for the Lord is holy. You've been called into relationship with the Lord, so you need to be holy like the Lord. And who said that? Who else said that but the Lord himself in the Sermon on the Mount? You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Holiness is one of the the main pursuits of the Christian life. Um, This is is how this connects so obviously to a discipleship study to understanding how I'm supposed to live as a Christian. One of the key things you're supposed to do is pursue holiness. Now, I'm not going to take too much time to qualify this as, you know, don't do this legalistically, hypocritically like the Pharisees to accomplish your salvation. Do this um, as a product of your salvation. We've been freed by the death and resurrection of Christ to pursue holiness. It's not something we have to slavishly pursue in order to earn the favor of God, we have the favor of God, and he's given us the means to do this. That's, I think that's all the qualification I need to give right now, because I, I would end up taking all of the rest of our time to establish that. Um, but do this because you love the Lord who saved you. Do this because you've been saved by the Lord and gifted, um, even been given his spirit in order to pursue this. Part of holiness is... Also, what, what the first part of chapter 16 deals with, which is, or chapter 6 deals with, sorry, which is um, lawsuits against believers. And this is interesting because there's to be a, a kind of conduct from believer to believer that, one, shouldn't demand a lawsuit ever to begin with. There shouldn't be a problem. Okay, but that's speaking in ideal terms, and we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, so we're not in an ideal world. But 
Um, the way believers handle conflict with other believers is not to be the way you handle conflict in the world. So again, how, how does this connect to discipleship? Will you act differently that you're, now that you're in the church and you're part of a different, dare I say, community? It's kind of a buzzword anymore. Um, than you used to be. In, inner church disputes ought to be settled inner churchly in the church. Um, and so Paul even says that, where he says, verse 5, I say this to your shame. So the very fact of going before a secular law court, believer to believer, um, in a secular court, is shameful, according to Paul. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? You think about this. Um, who is the God of all wisdom? God, obviously. Um, and he's given his spirit to whom? His people, the church, who are saved. So who actually has access to the wisdom needed to decide between disputes? Believers, right? Just categorically. Um, so part of the concern of being holy and not being immoral is dealing with conflicts within the church properly as well. And um, I think this is one reason that the elders in the church are called to be, um, are, are given such a serious list of qualifications they need to meet because they're the kind of men that are going to be dealing with this kind of stuff. Um when disputes and and issues arise um, from believer to believer, and they necessarily will arise because we're we have the principle of the old man still within us, seeking to um, tempt us and bring us back into obedience to uh, the devil and our flesh and all that. Um, <clears throat> the second half of chapter six covers the next issue, which is the abuse of one's body, and he actually quotes what probably were common sayings that they had or were common in Corinth. And so if you've looked at verse 12 and verse 13 of chapter 6, and you've kind of scratched your head like, I'm not really sure what to do with these things. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord. So these statements, all things are lawful for me, and the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, are, were probably like proverbial statements that uh, would have you would have heard in Corinth. And uh, if one of the issues that Corinth was facing, one of the main issues, was an abuse of Christian liberty, then you could see how um, this would be a proverbial statement you might latch on to if you're inclined to be way more liberal than is wise um, in your Christian walk. All things are lawful for me. I can do anything. I'm free in Christ. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. I can eat it whatever I want. It's just food, right? It all goes to the same place. It all gets broken down into uh, the nutrients I need. It's just food. And Paul has to try to tighten that up to give... Again, the doctrinal reminder in verse 13, the doctrinal reminder, which is, yet the body is not for immorality, but for whom? 
the Lord. Again, who do you belong to? Who does the church belong to? Who is the Lord? It's the Lord Jesus. The Lord is the Lord. Is the Lord. The Lord Jesus is the one who has saved us, united us to himself, given us his spirit, um, um, made us uh, to be his bride. Uh, we are his. We belong to him. And the the people in Corinth, they seem to have, or the Christians here in the Corinthian church, they seem to have um, so latched on to the fact that an idol is nothing, pagan religion is empty, there's no deity, there's no pagan deity behind these idols. It's just it's just a piece of metal or a, or a piece of stone. Um, it's just a stone building. There's wicked practices that happen, but it's, it's nothing. And so they've they've gone to where they're joining in um, even the kinds of things the pagans do, um, thinking that they're they're able to do that because the paganism is nothing. And part of pagan religion at this time would have been um, cultic prostitution, um, because there's the idea that you're worshiping the fertility god, so then you engage in an act of fertility, and so then that's propagating the the fertility of the people and the land and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the if you want to spot a false teacher, um, see if they have an overemphasis on sexual morality. Because if they do, if they're obsessed with it, think of um, a guy like Mark Driscoll. He preached on Song of Solomon, I think seven or like seven to nine times. And he he talked about the relationship between a husband and a wife in such gross terms that uh, you 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 shouldn't even read it as a Christian or listen to it as a Christian. Um, and so you say, how do you spot a false teacher? That's one way. Jude says that, that they pervert the grace of God into um, lasciviousness. Um, so that was that was extra. Um, the the Corinthians seem to have done something very similar, and they were abusing their freedom. And Paul is saying, you you belong to the Lord. You don't belong to yourself. And the pronouns um, in the second half of chapter 6 are singular for you and your. So he's not talking about the church. So when he says in verse 19, do you, individual, not know that your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, individual. Um, yes, it's true the Holy Spirit is here in the temple, or in Trinity Bible Church, which we could call a temple of God. But um, your body, your individual body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it's to be set apart for sacred use, for service to the Lord Jesus. You've been bought with a price, he says in verse 20. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So you're to be holy. That is the report from Chloe's people, um, chapters 1 through 6. And in 15 minutes here, I'll try to cover the next, which is great because then I don't have to um, solve some of these problems right now. Um, <clears throat> chapter 11 is uh, it's just weedy, and I think I downloaded about 12 articles on it. But I'm trying to work through just to try to get my head around that one. Um, I know Pastor Will preached through First Corinthians um, some years ago, so you can 
um, find those online. So if you want to know um, what has been taught from this pulpit regarding some of these issues, then I would say go online and listen to it. Um, and you will you will not um, be left unblessed. You, you it will be fruitful. Um, he responds to a letter from Corinth here for the rest of the book um, through chapter 16, verse 4. And the issues he's dealing with are marriage and divorce in chapter 7, um, what to do about eating meat sacrificed to idols and Christian liberty in chapters 8 through 10, um, what to do about proper church worship order in chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, and then how to think about, um, probably not how to think about, it's probably the wrong way to say it, but the the importance of the resurrection to the gospel message, and that uh, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the body, then you must, then you necessarily must not believe in the resurrection of Christ's actual body, in which case you don't actually have the gospel. And that's what he's saying in chapter 15. Then in chapter 16, 1 to 4, he deals with giving, um, how to give properly for the needs that um, the church in Jerusalem had, which they were going to um, help care for by giving. So um, we'll just look at this here. In chapter 7, real briefly, I, again, I can't solve every problem in this text because it's just a survey, but notice that there's a... The issue here is that um, believers are to be joined to believers, and um, there is freedom to be uh, married or not married. Uh, depending on which book you pick up off the shelf in the Christian bookstore, in the marriage section, um, if there is a Christian bookstore that exists anymore, actually, uh, it'd be like trying to find a blockbuster these days. Um, there's there's an overemphasis usually, depending on which book you're in, uh, on how singleness is something that you must pursue, or marriage is something that you must pursue. And Paul in chapter seven says, uh, just be wise. <laughs> That's really the principle. Just be wise. Um, and he says it's good not to marry. It's good to marry. Um, it's good to, if you remain single, then you are able to pursue uh, the Lord more fully because you don't have the concerns of a spouse and a family. Um, but if you marry, there's nothing wrong in that. So um, I would just caution you when you look at chapter 7, uh, and when you think about marriage and um, singleness especially, that you uh, don't allow preference to uh, cloud uh, your judgment, but you think about it as there's there's wisdom to be applied here in this matter. Um, some people appeal to verse 15 and then verse 39 to talk about um, remarriage being permitted after divorce. And I was taught that that's the case in seminary, but I know that um, other very godly men have taught that that is not the case. And so, again, I would just encourage you to go listen to the sermons that Pastor Will preached, and um, and you can go do a study on that. 
I know my father-in-law and I have had discussions about this because we're we're just trying to figure out what does the text say. Um, and uh, I'm kind of I'm probably in flux as I'm trying to figure out um, the best way to understand these texts. So I would just encourage you, uh, if you if that is a question you have, is remarriage permitted after divorce at all, ever, or never, um, then go listen to um, those sermons. And if you um, want some resources, then I'm sure I can recommend some to you that um, would be helpful in thinking about the major issues. Uh, if we go to chapter 8, things sacrificed to idols here is this principle. An idol is nothing. So meat sacrificed to an idol is just meat. Food sacrificed to an idol is just food. Um, but not everyone's going to be able to make that distinction. Not everyone's going to be able to separate what occurred as part of a pagan worship practice um, as just empty ritual that meant nothing, and so nothing's actually happened to these substances. So he says, you should be willing to set aside your freedom, um, which you enjoy, in order to protect your brother's sanctification. It's kind of a wordy way to say that. Um, so let me just read that again. I'll just read what I actually wrote down. You should set aside your freedom to enjoy anything, should your brother's sanctification require it. And uh, if you think about the, rec- the more recent like missions movements, there's been a huge emphasis on you have freedom. It's your freedom. Go. Um, you got to go be like the world. We'll use um, chapter nine to to make that case to be to the Jews. I became as a Jew, so I might win the Jews. So then you know go into the bars and reach the lost and all that kind of stuff. And um, Paul is not actually talking about using freedom. He's talking about restricting freedom. And that's really important to understand chapter 9. It's not how much can I do, but it's how should I restrict what I can do for my brother or this um, weak Christian's um, edification. So the case study that he's kind of keeps coming back to in uh, these texts is you know the idol's nothing, but your brother or sister who is just saved out of paganism uh, still in their conscience regards that idol as something. Even though they hate it, even though they know it's wicked, that if they see you engaging or eating meat that had been used in a pagan worship ritual, um, they will think that there is permitted some connection to paganism. And uh, so they'll think that they're sinning uh, if they do that, but they'll, they'll see that you did it, so they're encouraged to do it, but in their mind they're sinning. So he says, restrict your freedom. Re- restrict your freedom. And in, in uh, Romans uh, 14, or is Romans is this way, uh, in Romans 14, um, this is uh, a very similar issue here. 
Uh, he says, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You don't use that verse, who, who are you to regard the servant of another, to um, allow sin to exist in another person. But if it's a matter of Christian freedom, then don't pass judgment, as Paul's talking about. Very similar idea there. Um, the point is, be willing to lay aside your freedoms uh, if it means... Um, encouraging the sanctification of your brother. So that could happen in um, in a number of situations today. Um, you, we all know that the the prohibition against alcohol in Scripture is against being drunk with um, with wine, but so the drinking of it itself is not the sin. It's the being controlled by it. And, uh, but we also know that in our conservative church context, and conservative churches like us, um, alcohol is regarded as a much more serious thing than um, if you go to uh, maybe a more contemporary church, especially if you go into society, because it's associated with a culture that is just wicked. And so... You might say, I have freedom to enjoy, but I'm not going to enjoy. I, I know that if I took a sip, like I'm not in sin. But I also know that what that could encourage in the brother or sister in the pew next to me is um, a return to that kind of a culture and those kind of practices. So I will not engage. Why? For their sake. That's just one example that comes to mind um, and uh, something that needs to be thought of. Uh, in chapter 11, in um, verses 2 to 16, he discusses um, the proper attire of men and women. Maybe not men, maybe just women. Um, and the principle is that this everything needs to be done for the glory of God. So um, the, this is the same as the principle that shows up when women's attire is mentioned in First Peter, uh, where the um, or, or in First uh, Timothy two as well, that your the presentation of yourself, what you put on your body when you come to worship, is to be done so that you are. Um, not creating a distraction from people worshiping the Lord. So in First Timothy and, and in, in First Peter, Paul talks about how um, not in braided hair and jewelry, and uh, Roman women would put like all their money in their hair. Uh, they would they have these huge, crazy braids that defied physics, and um, they literally would sew the braids together so it wouldn't fall out. And they'd weave pearls and and gold nets and stuff all through it. So it just, I mean, so when she walked in the room, it just, you know, 
You just everyone noticed. Um, so he's not prohibiting jewelry. He's not prohibiting hairstyles. He's not prohibiting uh, expensive clothing. He's prohibiting displays of any of these things that distract from the purpose of the worship, which is what? To worship the Lord. Um, and so that seems to be a similar principle that's in um, chapter 11. And I don't know uh, what uh, has been taught here regarding head coverings. So I will just, again, direct you to what has been taught here regarding this and uh, go find it online because um, that's, that's one that I'm not prepared to answer right now. The Lord's Supper, um, again, this is talking about the church worship order, Christian order in worship. So you have the proper way that men and women behave, and then you have the way you behave when you come to enjoy the Lord's Supper, and we talked about that, that was two weeks ago. Um, and again, the principle is it's the other person. It's the other person is the one I need to, to consider in um, how we worship the Lord. So I need to consider that they're coming here to worship the Lord, so I should not be um, self-centered, and I should not be creating a situation where they can't um, think properly about the Lord and worship the Lord properly. That was the big principle that came out of the Lord's Supper, that you need to regard the body properly, regard the judge the body rightly. And there's... Uh, commentators will disagree on whether that means the body as in the church body or the body as in the bread, the the element um, in the Lord's Supper. Um, some commentators will say it's both. That's becoming more popular, actually, in, um, as stuff's being written today. I don't know if that just reflects a pluralistic society, but it's more popular to say, well, he actually meant both at the same time. Um, and the point is you should be considering... Um, <clears throat> I think what we're doing here when we eat of this, uh, we're here for the Lord. Spiritual gifts are to be used, again, not for your own selfish indulgence, but for the benefit of your brother. You see, each of these comes back to that principle. In chapter 12, it talks about tongues and um, prophecy in chapter 14. In verse 7, of chapter 12, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's the purpose of the gift? It's for the common good. It's for the good of the church. So that runs into chapter 13 really cleanly where he says, tongues, if I have tongues, but I'm not loving. If I have the gift of prophecy, but I'm not loving, it's useless. What is love? Um... Love is an action. Love is truly any action I engage in which is um, purely for the best interest of the other party. Um, Maybe that's kind of a weird way to define that. But love is, it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not... um, just a disposition towards somebody, but it's actually uh, verbal. It's active. It's it's something you do. And uh, in the church, I've, I've called this the rule of love. My dad said maybe economy of love is better. That's actually probably a lot better. That the church is to operate in with this principle of love as the 
kind of the, the basic operating function of each member in the church. When I come here, I'm here to worship the Lord, and I'm here to um, direct everybody else to the Lord. I'm here to encourage everybody else in their sanctification. I'm here to um, share the burdens of my brothers and sisters. I'm here to pray with my brothers and sisters. I'm here to encourage them and um, foster their spiritual growth. I'm not here to get a product. I'm not here as a consumer. I'm not here as somebody who comes, gets the message, and heads out. I'm here as somebody who is to be a participant in the growth of each other's lives. And so that's the principle in chapter 14 of prophecy, that one who prophesies edifies the church. That's why he calls that, that's why Paul says that's superior to tongues, uh, superior to uh, even the other spiritual gifts, because prophecy by its nature is receiving a word from the Lord and um, and speaking to the church, something that edifies them and grows them and directs them and helps them to understand scripture. So the tongue is not, gifts of tongues are not helpful in that way, um, but prophecy is. And so that's why he says you should seek that one. We know uh, that these gifts, tongues, and prophecy are not around anymore. Okay, maybe that's a shock to some of us here. Um, they are, if you look at chapter 14, verse 21, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. Tongues are actually real human languages. There's no such thing as an angelic language um, that you can speak in. Maybe there's an angelic language, but that you can speak in. Um, and prophecies have um, ceased since the apostolic age and Ephesians uh, 2.20 is the verse for that, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's New Testament prophets. That's not Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. That's um, New Testament prophets, prophets like Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and once you lay the foundation and then you're starting to build the rest of the structure, um, then those cease just as the apostles ceased. Uh, there's no apostles today. They passed on church governance to the elders who appointed and ordained other elders. Um, so the apostolic gifts also ceased. Um, I can give you a more robust defense of that if you desire it, but that's it in a nutshell. They're for a sign. Um, chapter 15, um, again, since I'm out of time, I'll just, just say this. Chapter uh, 15, verse 17 is the key verse. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. That's the key verse. Um, so the resurrection is crucial. That's the word I'm looking for. To the gospel. Um, I'd say message. You can be saved without hearing um, about a future resurrection without hearing about Christ's resurrection, but it's crucial to what the gospel actually is, which is payment for sin and the um, security of life. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, 
then he didn't actually pay for sin. He must still be paying for it right now. Um, it's very important. In the following verses up through, uh, up into uh, verse 58, so to the, to the end of the chapter, that's what I'm trying to say, um, he talks about the resurrection body. And um, it is uh, well worth your reading. Um, Pastor Gary at Hillcrest always said, um, you go there for answers about what the resurrection body will look like, and you leave with more questions than you brought. But um, it's just well worth your read when you get a chance. In chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, the principle of giving is give cheerfully, give freely, give regularly, um, and uh, set aside money for that purpose regularly um, and and do it for your fellow believers. And so that's even a part of um, worship. And then the end, the rest of chapter 16 is um, the following, the uh, final exhortations, the final greetings. And he just urges them to be strong Christians. Uh, in verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. That's First Corinthians um, in just over 45 minutes. Um, so I will take 30 seconds for a question or a comment, and then we'll close it because I don't want to push too far. So, <clears throat> Yes, sir. Would you say that First um, Corinthians is a mirror of most or all churches? Or no, this is a... Uh, Base and there are there are definite distinctives between uh, between churches that uh, exhibit more more maturity. What, how, how would you think about First First Corinthians in light of the church yeah. at large? The passage I would think of if I were going to think about kinds of churches would be uh, the first three chapters of Revelation. Um, and I think first I think the Corinthian church there's. It's probably unique because it was um, dealing with issues, some, some of the issues like the abuse of gifts with their gifts. We, we do have the abuse of gifts today. You know, there's probably some of us in this room are not using our gifts properly, but we're not abusing the sign gifts because we don't have those. So there's a uniqueness for sure, but uh, it's in scripture. Um, it's about proper church order. It's about correcting their thinking of timeless issues, uh, timeless principles. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very applicable and it has to be that every church can go look at this and say, Oh, we've got things we need to shore up in our own church, you know, but I think that happens with every book of the Bible, especially in the new Testament where he's correcting church order and stuff. This one is so practical. Um, unlike Ephesians, you know, where it's, there's tons of practical stuff in there, or Colossians. There's tons of practical stuff in there, but so much of it is just glorious doctrine. You don't get that clean break, glorious doctrine that leads into practice. It's like they're jumbled together in First Corinthians. So, yeah, it is unique, um, but obviously very applicable. So, good. One final question or comment? Yeah. Uh, when you talked about restricting freedom, you know, for the sake of others. 
is that something that is done quietly or is it done, do you talk about it sometimes with them because they know talking can be a form of edification too? Mm-hmm. I think I think from your standpoint, you do it quietly, but then your if you love them, chief of one of the chief things of your concern for them is their edification, which would include their growth in understanding this area, right? Like if they think if I engage in this practice, I am sinning, but you know that that's that's wrong, because Scripture doesn't put that restriction on you, then you would want to encourage them and help them to grow in that area. Um, but you would, I think still you would be quietly restricting your freedom and not kind of broadcasting that reality, um, even as you're seeking to help them grow and see scripture more clearly in that area. So kind of both and. (laughs) Great. Well, let me go ahead and pray for us and then, uh, we will go get some coffee. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for... And what you've written in your word, and that we were able to look at it even just so um, swiftly and so um, just barely scratching the surface. I pray that uh, we would uh, be encouraged to, to read that book, to study it, and to just be thinking about how we operate as individual believers in this church, Trinity Bible Church, your church, and that we would be encouraged to be um, seeking uh, your glory and seeking the good of our brothers and sisters around us. Um, equip us now, Lord, to uh, hear your word, which is um, coming in the next hour uh, from Pastor Will. Especially equip him to um, preach it boldly, uh, to preach it clearly, and uh, that your word would not return to you void. We pray this in your name. Amen.